0: Twenty-one. we read this, like a great millstone thrown into the sea. Babylon will be thrown down, we read, with violence. Now, if you remember from last week, something strange happened. So the picture is that Babylon is thrown down. And then what is the result of the judgment that comes? We read that the harpist, the musicians, the flutists, the trumpet players, they go silent. They will be heard no more. And then in verse 22 uh, of chapter 18, you read that the craftsmen and their mills and and all of their making of stuff will be heard no more. You hear of a bride and a groom in Babylon, and they will be heard no more. As judgment falls upon Babylon, there's great silence. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that this morning we're going to change vantage points where we were looking at the earth, now we're going to see the vantage point of heaven of all of this. And we shouldn't be surprised that where there was silence on earth and silence of Babylon. As we're brought into the heavenlies, we should not be surprised to see that in the heavens, we hear the shouts of hallelujah. Let's look at the text, chapter 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice Of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. And he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever. Endeavor. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down, and they worshiped God who was seated on the throne, saying, amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice, praise our God and all his servants who fear him, small and great, And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord, our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It is granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. And then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Would we receive it with humility this day? Would you use it to penetrate the depths of our hearts that we might be pointed to the wonder of our union With our Savior Jesus Christ. We pray. Amen. No doubt many of you have heard it before. You may have been at performances for Handel's great work, The Messiah. Um, Do you know at first it wasn't necessarily incredibly well received, particularly in England? Um, Particularly, people were very upset because it was being played in secular theaters and it shouldn't be so. And anyway. The the very first time, there's, we don't know whether this is true or not, but we'll go with it because it preaches well. Um, That at the very first time, uh, the Messiah was was performed in, in, in London, in England. The King of England was in attendance. And at the first note of that incredible chorus, that incredible hallelujah chorus. Maybe those words can even ring in your head. I won't try to sing it for you now. You would not want that. But at the first notes of the hallelujah chorus, the king rose and he stood. And so because the king stood, everyone stood. And so the saying goes that that's the reason why if you've been to and heard the Messiah when it comes to the hallelujah chorus, People stand. It's probably the most famous part, I would imagine, of that great work. Handel, whenever he wrote it, he said this. He said, I did think, as he was writing that hallelujah course, I did think, I did see all of heaven before me, and the great God Himself. Now, given our text and all this morning, we shouldn't be surprised where, where, where what Handel was re- relying on as he wrote that great great hallelujah chorus. It was Revelation chapter 19. And as beautiful as that is, and, and you, you, you've you likely heard it before, as beautiful as it is, I hope you know that what we are going to read, what we're going to be talking about this morning, these, these hallelujahs that are shouted in heaven are far greater, far more wonderful than any time you may have heard the hallelujah chorus song. That word hallelujah, do you know what it means? It it simply means praise the lord it's an old testament it's a hebrew word used we see it throughout the psalms and in fact if you if you are in the sv and you go and you look through the psalms you actually won't see that word hallelujah you'll just see praise the lord praise the lord because it's translated for us that's what that word means and and in fact revelation 19 is the only time we see it in the new testament as we see this hallelujah shouted out four times in the heavens, as as heaven cries out. Now, why does heaven cry out with hallelujahs in our passage this morning? Two main things I want us to see. First, and this one's gonna be a little strange, but then revelation is kind of strange, right? So the first, the hallelujahs ring out because of the celebration of a funeral. That seems odd to us. And secondly, and this makes more sense to us, maybe, the celebration of a wedding. And so we're going to see both. And, and what I want, hope we'll see, and we've kind of seen it throughout Revelation, is this is where the trajectory of all history is leading towards Is leading towards this funeral and this wedding. Now, as you think about funerals, funerals are, are not really a time of celebration, right? Now, we do often in our day, we, we, we tend to, sometimes we title them celebrations of life, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not going to say that that's a wrong thing to do. But let's also be very honest. Funerals aren't celebrations in the proper sense, right? There may be a sense in which we celebrate the the going of a loved one who gets to to go and, and be freed from this world and go into the heavenlies, and that is a sense of celebration, right? But as I've had the opportunity to do far too many funerals, I've said, Very similar words every time from that of a five-year-old girl who, from our perspective, from my perspective, sure seems like she went to be with the Lord far too soon, to that of the 90-somethings who um, were actually yearning to be with their Savior. Each time I've said something similar, as I've told the the people gathered, that as you gather, you, you, you should be grieving. It's appropriate because everything is not okay, is what I usually say. Because you've lost a loved one. It's not the way things are meant to be. A world filled with sickness and death and sin. Funerals exist. Let's not miss it. Funerals exist because of the brokenness of this world, because of the ravages of sin in our world. That is the reason that funerals exist. And they are a constant reminder to you and I of the brokenness of this world. Constant reminder of the ravages of sin. And so we must ask, why? Why is there a celebration for a funeral in our text? Did you catch it? Verses one and two. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. We read of the great judgment that has come upon this great prostitute that we saw last week. Babylon, this Babylon that, that, that seeks to deceive us and, and pull us in with all the things it has to offer with the money, the prestige, the power, the stuff of this world that tries to grab our affections and is judged for, as we see in verse 2, for, for her immorality. Now, as we hear this judgment, this funeral of Babylon, Let's not miss, and let's not be deceived into thinking that this is just for really, really, you know, those really bad people. Not just for, like, really bad Babylon. Look at verse 3. Once more, they cried out, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. In that moment, we see but a brief snapshot, a brief picture of the eternal judgment that awaits not just the super bad people, but all who are not in Christ. As we see this eternal judgment, this eternal going up of the smoke, this is the fate of all who don't flee Babylon. And who don't run to Christ. Why is this celebrated in the heavenlies? Why is this a source of celebration? Why is this a hallelujah? I think we need to put on heavenly spectacles, if you will, heavenly glasses. We need to be reminded we're we're, we're being welcomed in the heavenlies and able to see from that perspective. And certainly we're reminded as we have kind of over and over in Revelation, this reminder that judgment is coming to those who have persecuted the church. Why is this a hallelujah? Because we see here the sure and certain promise that God truly will judge evil. And if he does not do that, can he? Could he ever be a good God? if he allows sin to just continue to ravage and evil continue to ravage this world, what kind of God would he be? Ultimately, as we see this hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. We we see here is the destruction, understand, the destruction and the end of sin. We see in this a picture of this incredible vindication of Christ's work the vindication of the suffering that his people have had to go through. His judgments we read are true and just. This smoke is in some way an answer to that question that you probably heard at many funerals that that, that Paul shouts out with kind of a rhetorical answer, but what does he say? Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? What we see before us, Is the final destruction of sin and death. We're reminded that this, the ravages of sin in this world, will come to an end. The end we'll read about in in chapter 21, when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Why are we reminded of that today? This is meant to be a comfort to us. It's meant to give you and I hope that God truly does have a good plan. He will deal with the evil that we face in this world and he will deal with it finally and faithfully and in a true way, his way will be and is true and just. Even when we can't understand it, even when we can't comprehend it, but I want to give less of an apologetic for (laughs) this end this morning than to ask us to reflect on our own hearts and our own lives. This is going to be a strange question, fitting with a strange book, right? Are you living for a funeral? Of course, none of us would think so. Who wants to live for a funeral, right? but I think that's part of the warning that we have here before us. Are you living for the carnal comforts of this world? I'm reminded of something. I shared this before with you guys as an illustration of something my aunt said. She was very upset that I shared it with you. So I'm gonna share it again. Um, And I'll just make clear, she was joking, I think. Um, we, We were talking Uh, talking about, uh, I was helping her invest some of her retirement money, and, and she joked with kind of a twinkle in her eye, if I spend it all before I die, I win. She meant it as a joke. We hear it as a joke, mostly. But isn't that all too often how we live? As we live sucked in by Lady Babylon, living in, indulging, in fact, even, in sin, living for our own funeral. If this is you. I want to plead with you today. Flee Babylon. Run to Christ. You see, we're either living for a funeral or we're living for a wedding. One of the greatest privileges I have is at times being able to officiate weddings. And when you do so, um, you have the best seat in the house, though you never sit down. Um, You get the best view of of the bride walking in. When everyone else is just looking at the bride and groom's backs, um, they're looking at you in your eyes. And you can look at them in their eyes. One thing that's always clear with every wedding that I've ever done is the excitement of the bride and groom, the excitement as they move towards that day and then the excitement, yes, nervousness, but excitement about that day, about that wedding. It shouldn't surprise us then, I think, of the picture that we see in verse seven. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. The picture is of one who's betrothed to married, you know, engaged, if you will, but in a very formal sense, engaged to be, be married, readying herself for her wedding day. And it, this, as we look at this, let's not miss the contrast to what we saw last week. You remember that, the the, the that prostitute, you remember how she was dressed? In 17 verse 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. What a contrast it is to the bride that we see this morning in, in Revelation 19. One clothed in, in fine linen, bright and pure. Marriage is a theme that we see throughout Scripture. Of God and his, his relationship to his people. I want you to just hear a, a couple of verses here. Isaiah 61, all the way back in Isaiah's day. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation, he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Hopefully you hear some familiar pictures to what we see this morning in Revelation 19. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. God often uses this picture of his relationship to his people as that of a groom towards a bride. Chapter 62 of Isaiah, for as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, please don't miss this this morning, so shall your God rejoice over you. Do you hear those words? Paul paints a similar picture for us of the great love of our God for us, again, using marriage in Ephesians. Husbands, he said, love your wives as Christ loved the church and what? Gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. All this comes together in this picture that we see in Revelation 19 of the last day at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Church, do you, do we know, do we understand this picture? This picture that is a picture of Christ and his church and of his incredible love for his bride. For you and for me as the church. As Isaiah said, what does he do with his bride? He rejoices over his bride. Do you know the truth of that this morning? Do you know God's great and incredible love for you? A love that caused him, as Paul said, to. to to give himself up for us. Incredible love. A, a, a love similar to what we see sung about in Zephaniah 3. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you. Hear these words. He does what? For you, for us, the church. He will rejoice over you with gladness, quiet you by his voice. He will exult over you. With singing, do you hear of this love and wonder, how can it be? How can it be? How can he love me so? How is this even possible? And we're reminded that for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the incredible love of our great God for us. The greatest love you can imagine, the the greatest love of of a groom for his bride doesn't even, it pales in comparison to the love of our great God for his bride, the church, you, us, the church. This is how great his love is. Verse 8, it doesn't end there. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Remember that contrast of what that prostitute was wearing? The church is given clothes, bright and pure. God granted to us, the church, to put on these fine linens. We read something that might seem odd to us, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Just think. If a groom has loved his bride this much, If a groom has loved his bride as much as Christ has loved the church, what does the bride want to do? Verse 7, the bride wants to make herself ready, right? The bride desires to do righteous deeds because of all that her groom has done for her. And in verse 10, we read this kind of strange thing, but I think it fits here. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What does the bride want to do but shout from the rooftops about her groom? And ultimately, the bride wants to remain faithful. Faithful to her groom. Now, these are Appropriate responses of us, the bride, for the groom. In fact, I think they're even sure in certain promises that if, if you're truly a believer, you, you will, not always perfectly, of course, but you will be making yourself ready. You will be seeking to do righteous deeds, right? But, of course, we know that even our righteous deeds that even when we seek to say no to sin and yes to Christ, so often they're polluted by sinful desires here and there. That even this morning, as I as, as I try to preach your word, preach the word of God, a wonderful thing. Seemingly, you know, I I, I confess. I mean, I, I want you guys' approval, even our greatest efforts, even our seeking to do righteous deeds, they're, they're so often mixed and mingled, right? That's why it's so wonderful that the words of Paul in Philippians are true, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work his good pleasure. The beauty for, for the believer for those who are in Christ, is that God takes these these attempts at righteous deeds and this seeking to say, say no to sin and yes to Christ, and he takes them, and what does he do? He washes them pure through the blood of the lamb, and he clothes us with them. So that all will see and all will know the incredible love of the groom for his bride. There's a wonderful quote that I want to share with you from a Puritan, Samuel Rutherford. He says this, Our love to him should begin on earth as it shall be in heaven. In other words, as we're here on earth, we should begin to to picture the, the, the kind of love and begin to live out the same kind of love that we'll have when we're in his immediate presence, but continue to hear, for it speaks of our passage this morning. For the bride taketh not by a thousand degrees so much delight in her wedding garment as she doth in her bridegroom. What's the picture? The bride's dress is wonderful, it's beautiful. But nothing Rutherford is saying compares to the way that the bride Delights not in, in what she's wearing, but delights in the groom himself. So, he goes on to say, we in life too, come, howbeit clothed with the glory as with a robe, shall not be so much affected with the glory that goeth about us as with the bridegroom's joyful face, and presence. These liddens that we are clothed with, because of the incredible work of our Savior, Jesus Christ, they're wonderful, they're beautiful, they're incredible. Don't miss them, though, or mistake them for the groom himself. And it leads us to, to one last point. One last celebration that we see in our passage. You may have noticed we skipped the middle of the text. We've discussed our, we praise him because of a funeral, we, we, and we praise him for an incredible wedding as we sing hallelujah for both of those things. But there is another praise, there is another hallelujah that we've left out. Did you, did you notice it in the middle of our passage? The focus in the middle of, the, of our passage. Is praise not for what he has done, but for who he is. Verse four, the 24 elders, the four living creatures fell down and they worshiped God who is seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him small and great. And though I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of the mighty peals of thunder crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. What are they singing hallelujah here for? They're worshiping him for who he is, the Almighty The one who reigns, the call is to praise him, praising him for for who he is, To, to praise the bridegroom, not just for what he has done, surely we praise the bridegroom for what he has done, and let's not miss that, but as Rutherford said, And we find our greatest delight, not in the wedding garment, but in the groom himself. John, at the end of our passage, he seemed like he's overcome by what he has seen. The hallelujah chorus that he hears is so much grander than anything Handel ever wrote. He's overcome by it. He falls on his knees before the angel and the angel is quick to correct him. You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Worship God. That is the call call of this passage is to sing hallelujah, to sing hallelujah to our great God, to sing hallelujah to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Sing hallelujah to the bridegroom. If you're in Christ this morning, understand the incredible good news of that. If you are in Christ this morning, blessed are you who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. If you don't know him, can I say again, flee Lady Babylon. Run to Christ that it might be said of you too Blessed are you who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Can We go forth into the rest of this day and our week singing hallelujah to the Lamb who was slain for us. And might we learn more and more to delight in him And him, ultimately. Let's pray. Father, your love for your people is astounding. overwhelming if we will truly consider it, what you, our great God, have done for us in Christ. And the fact that you rejoice over and love your bride, so incredible to consider. Would you help us this day to believe, to know the truth of your love for your people? And might we learn to delight in you, even in the way you delight in us. Us as we continue our time in worship this morning. To sing, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Help us to praise you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength. And all of this in the name of our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.